We're moving ahead this morning in our study of Deuteronomy. Just to remind you a little bit that the as Deuteronomy is placed, the story of Deuteronomy is placed in the Old Testament. It's the last of the so-called five books of Moses and takes place as Israel is on the east side of the Jordan River after having been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and preparing to move into the um, promised land. And Moses is giving them their last instructions, their last encouragement, their last um, uh, instructions about what to do when they do move into the land before he dies, because he is not allowed, of course, to go into the land. You remember that we also talked about uh, Deuteronomy as um, showing us this idea of God's people not as a lifeboat that God is pulling up out of the world to save, but as a colony. So God is sending Israel into Canaan as his people to live as he designed with uh, along the lines of the values and norms of his kingdom. You also may remember that uh, it's likely true that Deuteronomy was written or at least put together, and some pieces of it were likely written in the 7th century B.C. as Israel was on the verge of coming back out of their exile to Babylon and coming back into the, the promised land. So it has both of these historical perspectives as we read the book. We've been going a little bit slowly through the introductory chapters just in order to lay a foundation for the rest, and the rest we're going to go through very quickly because we only have a few weeks left before Palm Sunday. Today we're going to read the last part of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the the end of Moses' introduction to the whole book, and starting with chapter 12, if you if you look at that yourself, you can see it. I believe it's 12 through 26. Then you have all of the laws that um, that God is giving Israel, and we're going to pick out a few pieces of those to look at over the next few weeks. So if you have a Bible, um, I invite you to open to Deuteronomy 11. We're going to read the very last section of it, uh, because a lot of what happens before is, is repetition of stuff that we've already talked about. So Moses says in in 11.26, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moreh? For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, then you shall be careful to do all the statutes and rules that I am setting before you today. Now just a comment about these two mountains. These mountains are still there, by the way. If you go across the Jordan, they're more 
a little bit, they're in the middle of uh, the land of Palestine. There's these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And um, I've read some commentaries. It's, I haven't been able to conclusively um, uh, confirm this, but there is at least the tradition that uh, these two mountains differed in their vegetation because of the way the rain fell. So that Mount Ebal, the, uh, the mountain of the curse, tended to be more dry and less able to be uh, more rocky and less able to be um, cultivated, whereas Mount Gerizim, the mountain of the blessing, was more was just the way the rain fell on it and the way it collected the rain was more able to be cultivated. So you have these two differences between these two mountains. And of course, they were right in the center of Israel. Between them was a very narrow valley, maybe about a half mile wide. And the town of Shechem was there. And I believe also Bethel was there, which is the place where Jacob, of course, had his dream of the ladder going to heaven. So God says to Israel, I want you to go, when you go into the land, to these mountains, because a ritual is going to happen there. And I want to read just a little bit for you of the, of the blessings and the curses as we find them in Deuteronomy 20, 28. So the idea was that half of, the, half of the tribes of Israel would stand on Mount Gerizim and half of the tribe of Israel would stand, stand on Mount Ebal. And if I had time this morning or if we were, were a Sunday school class, we'd look at which tribes they were and whether that had any meaning, but we just don't have the time to do that this morning. And, so, um, and then they would read out the curses and the blessings that were connected with their either disobedience or obedience of the law of God. So I'm just going to read a little bit of them, but if you have a chance again at home, you can read chapters 27 and 28, and, and they're listed there in quite detail. So let's read 28, 1 to 6 for the blessings. If you faithfully obey, obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And then I'm skipping down to verse 15, verses 15 to 19, which is just again a little section of the curses. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. And cursed shall you be in the, in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. And you notice, of course, that that's a mirror reflection of what we just read, just to give you a summary. 
Then if you go, skip ahead, and I won't read it because of time, but go to Joshua 8, when the people of Israel are in, have gone into the promised land, they've conquered Jericho and they've conquered Ai, then you can read in Joshua 8 that they actually did this ritual. You can read the details of it there. At first glance, a passage like this with the blessings and the curses may make a question arise in your mind. If we are good, God will bless us. And if we're not good, if we're not obedient, God will curse us. God pays us back with curses. And you get into a thinking about God, which is very natural to us, of a transactional nature. When I act this way, God does this. And when I act this way, God does that. If I don't do that, God does this. If I don't do this, God does that. And this way of thinking about God is pretty deeply embedded in who we are as people. And it's also pretty deeply embedded in our theology. The main metaphors that most of us learned as we were learning about Christianity were really two. One is the concept of a courtroom where you're standing before a judge and it turns out that you're guilty, you've broken a law, and because you're guilty and broken a law, then you need to be punished. I I drove 60 miles an hour in the 40-mile-an-hour zone, and so I need to pay a fine of so many dollars. That's transactional. Or another image that we have received is the image of a debt. So I, I owe God to obey his rules, to, to, to keep his law, and when I don't, I incur a debt, and then someone has to pay that debt. Either I pay the debt or someone else does in the Christian theology. It's Jesus that does that. Because we were not good enough Jesus had to pay God off with obedience, and God had to pay Jesus back with punishment. And that transactional idea of relating to God is embedded very deeply in our theology. And personally, I'm pretty convinced that it almost is the glasses, the lens, through which we understand our relationship with God. I know that it's true that if I sat down with any one of you and talked about this and we got got into it in any depth, that we all would say, no, my relationship with God is not primarily transactional. Nor is it the only thing that we've been taught. And a lot of us would say, I don't experience my relationship with God in that way. But still, I would like to suggest to you that our theology has basically taught us and our church experience, our religious experience, has taught us that this is, if not the, a fundamental way in which we relate to God. It's transactional. And we need grace because the transaction needs to be made right. And I think it's why we have so much trouble relating to God. 
why so many of us walk around with so much guilt, why it's hard for us to have joy. I think it's a reason why we have so much trouble with forgiveness. What is forgiveness? When should I forgive? What does a person need to do before I forgive? How many times? At what point does forgiveness stop? And I think it's why we have so much trouble with so many relationships. We are fundamentally looking for what we can gain in a relationship. Relationships need to produce something. There are expectations. I expect this from you, and when you don't give it to me, we have a problem. This transactional way of understanding relationships, including our relationship with God, is deeply embedded in our culture and in our Western society. It's the air we breathe. And I don't have time today to say much more about that, So, and I can understand that you might have some questions or thoughts about this or anything I'm going to say next. If you do, I invite you to interact with me. Text, email, um, you can take me out to lunch or take me out to breakfast, or actually I'll take you out to lunch and take you out to breakfast. Whatever you want, any way you want to communicate uh, is great. We can also do it on Zoom, whatever works for you. So if, if you do want to talk further, please don't hesitate to contact me. But a passage like this just reinforces this idea. God says very clearly, if you do this, I'll bless you. And if you don't do this, I'll curse you. The language could not be clearer. So what do we do with it? How can we think about it? Is there a way to think about it differently? And I'd like to suggest that there is. And I'd like to, to, to do that by bringing up two different things. The first one is this. And as soon as I say it, you all will say, yes, of course. God's love for you and for us is simply not based on what you do or do not do. It just simply is not. It just isn't. in spite of what this passage says. And the reason why I believe that is because, you remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the issue of God telling Israel to go and commit genocide in, in Canaan, we talked about the word that I used was trajectory in the Bible. That this idea of the holy war fits underneath a bigger concept. And the bigger concept is that the wrath of God, His punishment, His discipline, His training, always takes place in the context of His eternal love. Or to put it in another way, a more theological way, God is love. That is what theologians call an attribute of God. If, if you go into the catechisms, you'll find the catechisms talk about what are God's attributes, what, what defines him as a person. And one of them is love. None of them is wrath. We never say God is wrath. 
He is love. He is not wrath. So that wrath of God always has to fit into this bigger trajectory, this bigger container of his love. And everywhere in the Bible, I'll say almost everywhere, because I haven't looked at every place, but over the last 20 years, 25 years, I've been watching this. And whenever you see a passage of Scripture that talks about God's wrath, you almost always find in very close proximity to that statements about His eternal love. Let me give you just three of them real quickly. Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Psalm 30, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor for is a lifetime, for is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Which lasts longer? <laughs> the love. And then this amazing passage, which we talked about just about a year ago as we finished the, the book of Romans. <clears throat> at the, at the, this is like the last verse almost the last verse of all of the theology of Romans. All the theology about sin, all the theology about, about God's wrath, all the theology about punishment, all the theology about love, all that theology, all that theology about election, the whole thing. And these are Paul's last words. For God has consigned all to disobedience, there's another all for those that are counting. That what? He may have mercy on all. So you see this disobedience thing is then immediately surrounded by the bigger picture. Oh, the depth, says Paul, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, this wrath of God thing, this cursing of on disobedience is never the last word. It always fits in the bigger picture of God's unending love and compassion and mercy towards us as individuals and His whole creation. And somehow you need to fit those together. And at the moment we only are understanding God as our relation to him as a transaction, then we're, we're, we're putting that out of balance. And our lives become lives of transaction with all of the, the bad consequences that that has. The second, so that's the first thing. Um, God's love for us is never based, God's love for us is never based on what we do or do not do. But God does take human choices seriously and for human choices there are consequences. And if you read through these verses, especially Deuteronomy 27 and 28 carefully, you find two themes you find the theme of God saying to Israel, if you do this, this will happen to you. 
if you jump off this building, and this building is three stories high, you're going to hurt yourself. If you eat bad food, you're going to get sick. But he also says, if you do this or that, I will send blessing or I will send curse. So there's both of these things happening, that, sin, that the, the consequences of sin are seen as a normal consequence. If you're mean to someone every day, then that person's going to avoid you. That's just what's going to happen. And sometimes they're, they're, they're God's, the, way, the way the language here is, is God is sending these things. And Walter Brueggemann uh, really helped me with with one sentence, with one quote that I think just encapsulates this this content. The entire tradition, says Brueggemann, of Jewish and Christian faith starts from the glad affirmation that the world is governed, God is in control, by a God who takes human choices seriously. So here's this tension. God is governing things. He really, he really, he really is somehow governing things. Nothing, nothing happens out of his sight and out of his general, general, I can't think of another word, governance of things. But yet he takes human choices Seriously, So both of these things are true in some wonderful way. And, and Brueggemann calls that a glad affirmation that we make. And then Brueggemann tries to take these words from Deuteronomy and, and apply them to us today in a couple of really good quotes. So here's the next one. To be sure... There is no exact one-to-one correlation between the summons of Deuteronomy and the decisions characteristically made in a technological society, which is ours. But the Bible does not worry about exact correlations in any case. It works rather by hint, by trace, and by impression. This glad affirmation that the world is governed by a God who takes human choices seriously. And then he goes further. What the hints, traces, and impressions of Deuteronomy might be saying to a technological, self-preoccupied society is that self-promotion that is not curbed by the dread of the holy and self-sufficiency that is not impinged upon by the presence of the neighbor constitute a path to destruction. There's a lot in here. Self-promotion, which is what all of us struggle with, that is not curbed by the dread of the holy, that I'm, I'm living coram Deo before the face of God, and self-sufficiency. I can do everything myself. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can make things happen that is not impinged upon by the presence of the neighbor, here's the horizontal, 
constitute a path to destruction. If you're going through life with self-promotion, not curved by thinking I'm living quorum Deo before the face of God, or self-sufficiency that doesn't take your neighbor into consideration, you're going to end up broken on the sidewalk. You've jumped from the roof of the building. The destruction of the book of Deuteronomy is only occasionally presented as a direct intervention of Yahweh. It is more often a consequence that comes without an expressed agent. And here he's trying to hold these two things together. And then the last quote from Brueggemann. There are inescapable contemporary signs that the neglect of the human infrastructure brings huge costs that the community of the many pays while the gains of the few go unchecked. And Brueggemann wrote this commentary 21 years ago. He could have written it yesterday. There are inescapable contemporary signs that the neglect of the human infrastructure this self-promotion and self-efficiency without paying attention to Coram Deo and without paying attention to the need of the neighbor brings huge cost that the community of the many pays while the gains of the few go unchecked. For those committed to the covenantal option, as we readers of Deuteronomy are likely to be, it is reasonable to think that such unfettered, self-securing, self-securing without any limits, means soon or late forfeiture of viable humanness in brutality, anxiety, loneliness, and despair. Unfettered, self-securing. Today we would talk about the consumer, because our society is built on consumption. It runs on consumption. And we are told and encouraged to consume every single day, all the time. And we do it. Unfettered consumption means sooner or later, as consequence, that we lose viable humanness. In brutality, anxiety, loneliness, and despair. And that's what these passages in Deuteronomy are trying to say, tell us. They're not trying to tell us that if you do this, God is going to blow you out of the water. They're saying, if you want to live like a human, if you want to live like I made you to live, Live before the face of God. Love Him. If you want to live like a human, if you want to really live, then love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what I'm sending you into this land to do. Love your neighbor as yourself and live before the face of God. And if you do that, this land will blossom. And it will grow. And it will produce. And you'll live together with each other and you'll live together with me and you'll live together with creation in the harmony that I intended. 
There's nothing transactional about this. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's mapping out a way to live before the face of God and in the presence of your neighbor. And I wanted to conclude with a little story. This is out of a book which I've referred to before called Grounded by Diana Butler Bass. And she writes in her chapter called Neighborhood the following. On a late summer day when I was about seven years old, there was a commotion next door. We lived in one of three houses that shared a property line. Another of the three was owned by my uncle. My mother ran outside with me in pursuit, and we saw my cousin sitting in a huge tree on the property line with the third neighbor's yard. So he was sitting in the tree over the third neighbor's yard. He was wielding a saw and an axe, hacking branches away, while our neighbor yelled up at him from the near trunk, Come down right now, get out of my tree. My cousin yelled back and kept cutting and chopping. Each year, the old fruit tree dropped part of its ripened bounty on my uncle's driveway. As a result, it had created a sizable purple stain on the concrete. Having had enough of this and worried that his new car would fall victim to the fruit, my uncle set my co- sent my cousin up the tree to get rid of the branches overhanging the driveway. My cousin had been quite zealous in his task, taking out large sections of the tree. There was quite a racket, a good deal of cursing, and accusations about trespass. Another neighbor, a police officer, appeared on scene and calmed everyone down. My cousin descended from his perch, but still looked defiant among the piles of branches at the base of the tree. The owner of the fruit tree demanded recompense, and my uncle, now also on the scene, refused and laughed. The tree took the worst of it, looking every bit the victim of a chainsaw massacre. It never really recovered. Our neighbor and my uncle never spoke again. And although we did not know it that day, there would be no more pies made from the tree's fruit for the neighborhood. My mother took the neighbor's side against her own brother-in-law. After everyone had left, we stood on our back porch. I was crying, so upset I was about the tree, and my mother held my hand. Your uncle was wrong, she insisted. What if it was his tree? Would he like it if someone did that to his property? Her lips tightened into a grimace. He only thinks of himself, never others. I don't think he even knows the golden rule. He never considers his neighbors. Remember the golden rule from Sunday school, she asked as she squeezed my hand? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. She pointed to the sad remains of the once bountiful tree and said, We must love our neighbors as ourselves. If we don't, this is what happens.